Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Let's get into it. Happy, happy Wednesday. Happy new episode day. Here we are. Here we are. Well, I have like a tidbit. Okay, I was listening to a different podcast besides ours, which does happen. Does happen from time it, it to time. It does sometimes, yeah. You know, like it's not it's not always, but no, it, it is often. But we are a pod who supports other pods. We are. But if anyone else listens to the U Up podcast with Jared Freed and Jordana at Batches, he has this, like, discussion. Like, they're having this whole discussion about, like, Taylor Swift's, like, 10-minute song. And he had the comparison of saying that Taylor Swift is the Tucker Carlson of lyrics. Like, plays to his base. She plays to her base. Like, nobody's business. And I just thought this was, like, the funniest thing, but also so accurate. So accurate. Wow. absolutely puts the fire where it needs to be to make the dollars this is nothing against Taylor Swift I think she's a genius but yeah I mean the Republican Party really as a whole right like just great marketers Democrats not so much actually the worst at marketing and communications but hopefully that will change it will change because we are here to rebrand it which there we go. really leads me to my next thought. If you are working on a campaign, you're behind the scenes, or maybe you are running for office, you know, we have listeners of every stripe on this show, but you are looking to really get in front of our audience and get in front of young voters and figure out how to really maneuver those conversations. We are happy to help. We have many, many forms in our LinkedIn bio. And here that you can fill out, we are currently offering some additional consulting services, as well as a bunch of other, you know, sort of media opportunities that you may be interested in. So, yeah. link in bio, link Hit in us the up. description. You know, slide on in. HMU. We've got you guys on rebranding politics, but honestly, yeah, especially the Democratic Party. I mean, let's just say it. We haven't fully said it yet, but let's be real. They suck. They suck. So I feel like we should maybe introduce our guest. So here it is. But today we spoke with Dr. Jody Herman. She is the Reed Rasmussen. If I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, I am so sorry. Someone tell me what I'm doing wrong. But that is I couldn't help you there. No, there's no helping me. That's just I I couldn't. And I'd be the last person to help you on that. I have no idea. (laughs) Let's me sink. Let me swim. Okay. You're speaking with Dr. Jody Herman. She is a Reed Rasmussen Senior Scholar of Public Policy. And today we are talking about gender identity, gender expression, gender affirming care. I mean, we are getting into all of the things under these umbrellas and really just diving into also like defining what they are so you guys have an understanding and have really educated conversations on not just these buckets themselves, but some of the research too which is really cool. So without mm-hmm. further ado, here is Dr. Herman. First things first, let's talk origin story. Let's get the background. You are a senior <laughs> scholar of public policy, which makes me super excited because basically you've done all the academic work and I get to learn from you without <laughs> having to actually go to school. So this is huge for me yes. <laughs> and for our listeners as well. But give us the background. How did you choose this path? Where, you know, where along the journey were you like, okay, this feels like something I want to study, I want to learn more about? 
Well, I'm glad saying public policy makes you excited because I think it probably puts <laughs> most people to sleep. So that's fantastic. <laughs> well, strangely enough, plan A was to be a rock star. I was playing in a band for a few years after undergrad. Yes. And that just was never going to work out, you know. So grad school was plan B. P- getting a PhD was plan B. So I'm doing plan B, but I think it's it's pretty great. So I actually learned about public policy programs when I was living in Madison uh, Wisconsin, and um, they had a great program there. The My roommate at the time, who was the drummer, he was also looking into grad school. We, we knew where the band was headed, so we wanted to get out of that dead end. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so he started looking at programs and I we kind of talked about it and it sounded really great. It's, you know, as an undergrad, I was doing, you know, AC, I was uh, part of the little ACLU group and Amnesty International, I was doing all these like kind of, uh, you know, activisty types of things. So I wanted to do something where I could be like a nerd with impact. And so this is, it's been a good fit. So I went to George Washington University in DC and um, got my MA in public policy, had a concentration in women's studies. And then I got my PhD in gender and social policy there at the Trachtenberg School of Public Policy and Public Administration. So, but like I said, plan B seems to be working out pretty well. So that's great. Totally. Which is huge. 100%. But I have to ask, what did you play in the band? And what was the genre of the band? <laughs> yeah. What's the band name? Are they on well, Spotify? <laughs> <laughs> um, we were kind of in, we were in this, you know, weird era where it was kind of like between grunge and like kind of mid industrial, but not quite on the other side of all of that yet we were kind of a mishmash of like grunge industrial kind of thing i had very long hippie hair and i looked very i looked very grunge but i was the bass player and i sang on occasion that's epic holy that's amazing it was Uh, fun wait obsessed that's amazing (laughs) so (laughs) running it back to your work now the plan b as as you call it right Um, plan b here we go yeah your work is with the williams institute can you give us the background on the institute and what it does and what your work is like there and what you guys focus on yeah so the williams institute um, was founded by chuck williams businessman back in 2001 and the mission was to do rigorous credible research that might inform law and policy debates about uh, sexual orientation at the time, later on gender identity. So he noticed, as a lot of people noticed, that a lot of the public policy debates about LGBT people were driven by prejudice and biases and myths. You know, back then when we were considering like different types of relationship recognition for same gender couples, there was a lot of talk about how, you know, Gay couples would mess up kids. Their children would be, you know, have a lot of problems. They would all turn out gay. There was a lot of, you know, rhetoric like that. And so yeah. the Institute kind of was born in that era. And, you know, shortly thereafter <laughs> in 2004, there was a, a lot of campaigns around like, and the election was about the big issue was constitutional amendments, the state level to ban gay marriage in the states. And that was kind of what was driving some voters out. So the Williams Institute was kind of was formed in the midst of all those debates. And we've grown in size over time and we've grown in the types of issues that we cover. I came in as one of the first scholars that focused primarily on a transgender transgender population and gender identity. And we kind of added the gender identity piece after I came on. So we went from a very small group to now, I think we have over 25 individuals and we've got people in economics, political science, public health, we have a legal team. So it's all about putting research out into the world that's going to, you know, hopefully inform some of these debates so that they're made, uh, decisions are made more so based on research and facts and less so based on prejudice. Well, we love facts. Facts, I've missed them. You know, so in recent years, I've been like, where did you go? Should I write them a letter? See where they've gone. But, you know. Facts are like so 2015. Like facts are just like so passe. You know what that reminds me of, of like in Mean Girls, where they're like trying to make fetch happen. Like now today, it's like trying to make facts happen. Like people are like, eh, I'm good. But like. Honestly, We're not going to make fat, fat <laughs> We'll try and bring it back. You know, it's fine. Like, better than fetch. Better than fetch is facts. 
But speaking of, you know, trying to find those facts, understanding, you know, what that process is like, you're also a co-investigator on the U.S. Transgender Population Health Survey. So mouthful. Can you explain sort of what this survey does, what it looks to do, and like what its impact really is? And like, I also have to ask, like, do you get to wear like a detective situation in this moment? Like I, the second I read this in your background, I was like, Sherlock Holmes? Is I'm that you? Inspector Gadget. I don't know why. I love is Inspector that, Gadget. Is he even like an investigator? I don't even I'm think not he is. sure, but like he's good time. I don't know why that came into my head. <laughs> like I just want his jacket. This is great. Co-investigator is kind of a term used by NIH for like just members of the research team. You know, there's the leader who's the principal investigator. Okay. Who's like the big, you know, the, the lead detective. And then there's... um the little mini detectives or deputies, I guess, or the co Now I'm imagining mini detectives. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, keep going. I'm going to kind of demand my little, like, detective jacket. Yes, yes. Hourglass, like, yes. or not hourglass, a, um, what is it called? Uh, spyglass, right? Spyglass, yeah. Is that correct? Okay, I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Um, Something. Yeah, now I feel like I've been missing out this whole time. But, so... Just to put this study in a little bit of context, so one of the ways that we learn about the U.S. population, like the characteristics of the U.S. population, what, you know, our health indicators are, our economic indicators, you know, everything about the U.S. population comes from federal surveys. And like everyone knows about the census, right? But there's a bunch of different other surveys that that the federal government uses to learn about the U.S. population. And it's getting better now, but it's very rare that any of those surveys ask questions to identify LGBT people or trans people in particular. So in a lot of our federal systems where uh, LGBTQ plus people are invisible. So you, so uh, research groups like ours or academics and community organizations so like the National Center for Transgender Equality, for instance, have really had to, you know, onus has been on on us to actually create data about the population. And there have been a lot of large community surveys, like the National Transgender, Sur- the U.S. Transgender Survey, which has a very a name very similar to this one, but this one we call TransPop because it's easier and it keeps it separate. That's very um, fun. Yeah. But this one was unique because it wasn't really like a community-based survey. We actually used, we worked with the Gallup organization to enroll a a nationally representative sample. So instead of just like, you know, an organization doing a survey of their membership or whatnot, we could actually generalize our findings to the whole U.S. population. So that was what was kind of unique super nerdy feature of it, which we were all very excited about. But interestingly enough, the other survey I work on, the U.S. Trans Survey, it's a very large survey. Last time we had about 28,000 trans people respond. And that's a community-based survey. It doesn't use this, you know, probability sampling. And our findings matched up pretty well with the national, nationally representative sample. So our, our sample was large enough that we actually got findings that were pretty close to a nationally representative sample so that's good that's good to know that it kind of validated all the work that the activists and advocates have been doing all these years on that survey so that's what that's all about and of course we actually had findings about health and whatnot that we're publishing now but it was really just uh born out of need born out of necessity because the the feds aren't doing it for us so we got to do it ourselves okay that kind of makes like another question so like say okay you you're gathering all this data right like how does that then get submitted to the government anyway? Like, how do, is there like a way in which like you can then share that data and then they use it? Like, could they pay for that data? Like, how does, is there anything that sort of happens there? Well, we tend to try to package it up for them in the, Be you like, know, hey. in, in the form <laughs> of like a report or, you know, a, a brief with an executive summary because they can't. They don't have a lot yeah. of time to read things. So we try, you know, if they want the data, of course, they can get it. It's publicly available. But we do, at the Williams Institute, try to do write reports that are pretty accessible to the public and have, you know, nice short summaries for very busy lawmakers yeah. and 
and whatnot. So that's how we get our findings out into the world. We don't necessarily just like give them a spreadsheet because they won't do anything with it, right? We have to Definitely make it mean something. <laughs> and trust them yeah. to go through a spreadsheet. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, getting kind of into the nitty gritty on, on this work that you do and, and the conversations around it, we want to get into our I have a stupid question segment and Uh-oh. dive into <laughs> dive into some of this of this work and like so people can have a better understanding of it. To start, okay. our first question is, what is gender identity? You would think I know because I've been working <laughs> on this for a very long time. But, dif- you know, there's always uh, people have different takes on the definitions on all these things. But from my perspective, gender identity is the you know gender that you feel you are inside. It's your internal sense of being male, female or neither of those or both of those so that's just kind of your internal sense of self in regard Mm -hmm. to your gender makes sense okay and another one sort of in this category is what is gender expression gender expression so you have this internal sense of yourself but gender expression is kind of what you present to the world it's you know kind of the way you walk the way you talk the way you dress the way you wear your hair the way you you know and in our society and i think pretty much everywhere there are, you know, that's a kind of a gendered thing. You know, there's like a masculine way to present yourself and a right. feminine way to present yourself. You know, so gender expression is just like kind of what you're putting out to the world. Mm-hmm. And what is a gender minority? And also like how this plays into kind of the work and research you do. And ultimately well, policy. I, I, have, <laughs> I have friends that, that really despise this term for a variety of reasons. When I first heard it, I was like, gender minority well doesn't that mean men because men are like technically a minority but it's a term that has kind of caught on in public health realms so the national institutes of health has like a sexual and gender minority research office and people refer to gender minorities a lot in the public health literature so it basically means like not cisgender so cisgender means you your gender identity is the same as your sex assigned at birth, but a gender minority would be like somebody who's not cisgender, but it's a pretty mm-hmm. broad term and it encompasses people who might identify as transgender or might identify as um, non-binary or, you know, there's a whole list of gender identities that people might have. So this is kind of like the not cisgender group, gender minorities. Okay. Well, talking about healthcare, that's perfect going into this next question, which is what is gender affirming care? So gender affirming care can mean a lot of things to different people, but gender affirming care in like the healthcare context usually means accessing some type medical or surgical care or gender affirmation. So if you are a trans man, for instance, you might access hormone masculinizing hormone therapy. If you're a trans woman, you know, you might uh, try to access, you know, feminizing hormones. There's uh, different types of surgical care that people might need or, you know, some people also refer to it as transition. And so that's really just about kind of accessing medical care in order to, in order to kind of be the person that you feel you need to be. Right. So, yeah, I think that kind of sums it up. Totally. Well, getting more into to like, some of the work you've done and specifically a study that that called gender identity non-discriminate non-discrimination laws in public accommodations mm. that's another mouthful i did my best but <laughs> yeah. golf claps, can you, golf claps. thank you thank you yeah snaps okay. can you tell our listeners about this study and what what it evaluated what it encompasses what were the results give us all the details sure so this study so remember the mission of the williams institute is to try to put research out there to, you know, to inform like really, you know, salient policy debates about sexual orientation and gender identity. Believe it or not, for my doctoral dissertation, I did a study on trans people's experiences accessing bathrooms and locker rooms Mm -hmm. and uh, the development of anti-discrimination protections in Washington, D.C. to address this particular problem. And so during my dissertation, there was like, you know, this kind of percolating phenomenon that I heard about where there were 
local jurisdictions that were debating anti-discrimination protections for LGBT people or for trans people or whatnot. And people would say, yeah, well, you know, if you have anti-discrimination protections for trans people, then they can just use whatever bathroom that they want. And then that's going to lead to women and girls getting harmed in bathrooms and it's just going to be mayhem and we can't have that. We don't want men coming into bathrooms and it just became this kind of yeah. rhetoric. And then, so I started, you know, you heard hear about it in a couple of places and then you hear about it like somewhere else, like it's happening in Ohio or Michigan and Oh no, they're arguing that same thing in Florida. And like, it became kind of a, um, a refrain in these mm-hmm. anti-discrimination debates and it kind of came to it kind of like came to a crescendo around 2016 when they North Carolina did HB2 I don't know if you heard about yeah. that but it was you know a bill trying to you know restrict trans people's access to bathrooms and gender public spaces and there was a lot of pushback against it thankfully and then in 2018, Massachusetts, they had an anti-discrimination law in the books at the state, and there was a ballot initiative to try to get it overturned, to try to repeal the anti-discrimination law. So it just so happened that the timing of this study came out right around the, right before the Massachusetts uh, ballot initiative, but we didn't plan that. The study took like a couple years, but what we wanted to do, me and Andrew Flores and Amir Hayes and Bush, was just say, okay, look, you're purporting that all this, you know, all these terrible things are going to happen if you do this laws. Well, let's, let's just, let's study this. Let's find out if like, you know, there's some sort of mayhem that's unleashed by doing an anti-discrimination protection bill. And so we studied law enforcement records for a couple of years. Mira and her legal team were like, collect, you know, diligently collecting these records over time. And we had enough finally to map jurisdictions before and after they had enacted a law like this and then jurisdictions where they hadn't. And we followed them all kind of over the same block of time. And it turns out that when you enact an anti-discrimination law, all hell does not break loose. (laughs) It is, we didn't find that there was any evidence that there are problems in bathrooms for women or girls. So there was no evidence to support their arguments. And it was kind of interesting because that came out coincidentally, totally, truly came out coincidentally right before the ballot initiative and then the ballot initiative lost. So they did not repeal the law. And then the guy who was like one of the head people who was trying to get the ballot initiative passed to overturn the law. He basically said like, oh, the jig is up. You know, we made up that argument. We've been pushing it all around and it's made up. It's not based on anything. So let's just give up on that and let's directly argue about the morality of LGBT people and let's have that argument, yeah. which is kind of where they, they went after yeah. that. But so it was really just trying to put some, you know, scrutiny, like empirical study yeah. or scru- scrutiny on some of these arguments and Guess I have a what? question they about like made it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, how long Shock, does like shocking. <laughs> how long does that type of like research take? Because it makes me think too. Like mm. you know, by the time somebody makes some stupid political argument, how long does it take to like then do the research to disprove that political rhetoric? Like, well, I did my dissertation in like two thousand. I started studying. I started writing my dissertation researching in about 2008. So, you know, all these things have been percolating since then. The bathroom line of, you know, argument has been persistent for years. So even though it took us a couple of years, people were still, you know, it was working. They had actually gotten rid of the law in Houston on using that, yeah. ta- you know, using that tactic. So they were like, if it, you know, it's working, so let's keep it up. So that argument went on for years and years. So we had time. <laughs> Sometimes you don't have time, you know, and you have yeah. to really address things quickly. That's but so interesting. you don't really know what's going to resonate and stick with people. So, like, one of the earliest studies that the Williams Institute did was a longitudinal study of lesbian parents because responding to these arguments about, you know, the kids are not okay, right? right? Well, now we know the kids yeah. are 
the kids are okay but that was a longitudinal study it took years but it was Mm -hmm. still relevant by the time it came out so i think we need to do both and we need to do quick stuff to like you know respond to things that are happening right now but in you know with academic rigor you know it should be able to be like peer-reviewed but we have to also play the long game too because it might matter even mm-hmm. if you think it might be a fleeting thing, like what's going right. on now with trans athletes or access to gender affirming care for kids, like these things might seem like they're just going to pop up and go away, but they could be pernicious for a really long time. You never know. Yeah, that's so interesting. I was going to oh. say, we always say it's the it's the long game over the short game. Usually it's like the thing that like has the most proof in the pudding. So definitely can you know, sort of take that and not just run with it, but move to sort of another form of discrimination and talk about that from lens of study as well. And so discrimination at the polls, of course, like Maddie and I are always talking about voting and the polls. Mm. I mean, I'm sure people are like maybe tired of hearing us talking about it, but like too bad. (laughs) They're just going to have to live. They're going to have to do it. But you know, there are always obstacles at the polls that are only getting worse, or at least so it seems, you know, everyone is trying to make this challenging and an eye roll and something to be like, no, thank you. See you later. But there are particular challenges for transgender people at the polls. So to sort of just line up the conversation, can you give some of that detail as to, you know, what those barriers tend to be when, you know, a transgender person wants to vote and goes to the polls? What sort of discrimination do they typically face? Yeah, well, it could be a lot of things, but I will say that voting rights was one of the first things I worked on when I was in D.C. in grad school. I worked for an organization called Project Vote, and we tried to do strategic litigation and all kinds of stuff. So voting rights is like, it's great that it's big for you guys because it's it's big for me, too. I yeah. really am, am into it. And when I was working there, I was also, you know, in my graduate studies, working with, you know, the trans community and working on local activist initiatives for anti-discrimination law there in DC. But I I knew like the voting rights people weren't talking about trans trans issues and the LGBT yeah. people weren't talking about voting rights. So it was mm-hmm. kind of yeah, that's so something that I wanted to kind of put two and two together. So luckily at the Williams Institute, I got support to do some research on this particular topic and it came out of our, I didn't have any special funding for it. So they just let me do it. And, you know, it's, it was kind of shocking. We had good data about the types of IDs that trans people have from the National Transgender Discrimination Survey. And we've got better data now from the subsequent iterations of that survey. And one of the main issues is that trans people have a lot of barriers to getting accurate IDs, you know, getting the correct name, correct photograph, correct gender marker is a huge one. And so in our voting system, you have, you know, it's a two-step process. You have to register to vote, which usually requires a driver's license number or a social security number. And then you have to actually vote, vote, you know, you got to go either to the polls or voting by mail is becoming a bigger thing, obviously, because of COVID, but it wasn't really as big of a deal before 2020 as it is now. But so that's a good thing. Voting by mail, I think is helpful for trans folks who don't want to interact with poll workers. So imagine being in a state that has a really strict voting ID law and they only allow absentee ballot with a valid excuse and there's all these like kind of you know things that are pushing you to have to go vote in person and they have they require government issued photo id so imagine you have you know you've gone through a social transition a gender affirmation process you know you are living according to your gender identity but your driver's license is not your driver's license is living in the past and it has like the wrong name on it maybe Mm -hmm. the wrong picture and you have to go show that to a poll worker. So basically, my study was just about how many trans people have inaccurate IDs, how many of them would be eligible to vote, how many of them are living in these states that have these kind of strict voting rules. And, you know, so how many could potentially be even disenfranchised by these types of rules? Now, kind of everything changed with the pandemic because then they, a lot of states went to all male voting, which yeah. I think is really helpful for trans folks in that situation. You know, you just take that interaction with the poll worker out of it and it helps, it helps a lot. So that's kind of the crux of the research. Does that like affect 
after elections like representation at all like as far as just like representatives not understanding fully you know the demographic of their constituency due to that does that i don't know does that make sense well so when i i have no idea if this is answering your question or relevant at all but when we were doing the the big 2015 u.s chance survey we had 28,000 respondents we mapped out the respondents on a u.s map and then put it next to the population density of the united states and they are almost identical so that means that trans people live everywhere so anytime you know you're thinking that trans people might prefer to live in just san francisco or new york you know something something like that some people think that no trans people live everywhere that people live in the united states so I say no lawmaker should think that there are no trans people in right. their district. Yeah. You have trans people amongst your constituents. You do. And they are yeah. seeing you and hearing what you say. So, yeah. So I don't know. Um, if, but like, would they have to go look at your data impact. in order to see that? I don't know. I mean, I guess it just depends on how aware they are of their constituents and what's yeah. going on in their districts. I'm, Most of them aren't um, very. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that that seems like an old timey politician thing to actually go and <laughs> understand your districts and see your constituents and right. all that. <laughs> yeah, That's kind of old timey. Well, what, what are some of the states where some of these kind of the discrimination with voting happens the, the most? Well, I I can't say that the voting discrimination has the most, but I know the states that have the strictest. Yeah, you know the strictest laws, and. You know, things changed dramatically with the the Supreme Court decision on the Voting Rights Act that kind of gutted. It actually got rid of the formula for Section 5 preclearance, which means that when states, certain states that had a history of racial discrimination wanted to change their voting laws, they had to get permission actually by, who was it? It was like the D.C. court or the Department of Justice. But as soon as the Supreme Court gutted that then you see you saw these states kind of run wild with adding more and more strict voting laws so you can you know you can see that the there's a pattern (laughs) if you were to put like side by side the states that have the worst policy environments for trans people they kind of coincide with the states that have like the most stringent voting laws and they tend to be hover around like the south in the middle of the country not to, ah, you know, point, not not to point <laughs> fingers or anything, but that is where it's going on. So. Hey, it's the data. Hey, you know, it, it says a story. It tells a story, the whole nine yards. <laughs> but looking at things a little bit more broadly in terms of sort of at the national level, the U.S. Mm-hmm. has officially begun issuing passports with a non-binary X gender designation on it, which is super exciting. The curious question is, are there any studies that have emerged or emerging that are going to sort of study what impact this will have and in, you know, sort of what ways, if so? There's not a study on like, you know, what's actually happening, but I, I tried to look at, at, again, just the status of trans people's IDs. And so I just jotted down here that in the last study that I did on this 400, I estimated that 400 76,000 trans adults had no IDs that accurately reflected their gender in terms of the gender marker. So that's a lot of people, but I mean, you have no idea if uh, any of those folks would actually want the X gender marker, but it shows just like, you know, potential like demand pool for people who might want to either change their passports or potentially get an X marker designation on their passport. So it's hard to assess the demand for it, but I think that it's a great thing if somebody can have an ID that they're comfortable with, that they feel like reflects them. And when they go through TSA or wherever they're going to go with their passport, that they, you know, feel happy and confident with the gender marker that they have. I think that's, that's fantastic. Whether or not it has an impact on decreasing discrimination or anything like that, I, I, I don't know. I would think that for some people, if they if it caught their eye, an X marker might be something that's kind of curious, you know, and maybe they would ask some questions. But, you know, I, we'd have to ask people who have the X gender marker and see what their experience has been. I don't, you know, I just really don't know. Yeah. 
Well, moving forward to like kind of solving, eliminating some of this discrimination and can you kind of give any type of, you know, vision into what our listeners can do to possibly push policy level, especially for change on on this subject? And if there's any organizations to support, if there's even a way to support the Williams Institute, I'm not sure how you guys would need to be uplifted, but anything that people can kind of help like dive further into this this topic. Well, our development director would certainly say, yes, you can always <laughs> donate to the Williams Institute. You can go right to our website, find the donate button. But no, I mean, what I found is that like, from my perspective, it's one thing to like get a law in place. You know, it's one thing to get an anti-discrimination law in place. It's another thing to actually make it have a real impact in people's lives. And I happen to be a member of an activist group in DC that worked on anti-discrimination stuff there. And we actually had a really good relationship with, well, some might argue not so great, but I would argue a really good relationship with the Human Rights Commission there. And so when we got the law in place and they we lobbied for really strong regulatory language, which would explain what this means to businesses. Like, here's how you do not discriminate against people. Like, here are things you can do to actually you know, be in compliance with the law. One of the things, for instance, was if you had a single occupancy bathroom, then that anyone could use that you should just make it gender neutral. Like there was no reason to keep those spaces gendered. Although some people might argue, <laughs> like make cleanliness arguments or whatever you want to make, but really the facility is the same either way. So we, so we did a campaign to like go and you know, give businesses information about it. And if they would come in compliance, then we're fine. Otherwise we'd like report them to the human rights commission and they'd send them a strongly worded letter. And I don't know, it was just that kind of like, you know, on the ground kind of walking around trying to help businesses initially like come in compliance with the law. Those that's, you know, that's one initiative that this particular activist group did that I think made a difference, but ways in which you can, try to make good laws actually impact people in a good way. There's some, there's sometimes that breakdown between, yeah, we did this great law and it's really fantastic, but then people are still getting discriminated against. So you have to like make it meaningful. You have to, you have to make a work on the ground. So, you know, some people accomplish that through litigation. Some people accomplish that through like pressure campaigns. Like, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to go about doing that. But in my line of work, that's just like what I think of as a means by which to to make some change. But there are all different kinds of ways to to make change. There's so much need in direct service to like, you know, direct delivery of services and things like that. So any organization that's doing that kind of work or doing policy work, National Center for Transgender Equality can always use some support. You know, there's there's a lot that can be done. And if you don't have the motivation to do it yourself, and, but you have an extra buck or two, you can throw it the way of an organization that you think is doing good work. Totally. Love that. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing all these awesome insights. I hope everyone uh, learned a ton about this awesome research and all that good stuff. Thank you so much again for coming on and we look forward to having you back. Great, thank you so much for having me, it's been fun. Top stories of the week. We're gonna kick it off with some Build Back Better updates because Joe Manchin is, is of course, the real crux here. Would that be the correct term to describe him? Is it? (laughs) Like, yes. Well, let's just get into it. We'll decide if he really is the crux. It'll be the little mystery in a moment. Okay. Well, President Biden and Senate Democrats have themselves a Joe Manchin problem, per usual, as they are attempting to win his support for the Build Back Better agenda. And they are, you know, their goal was to pass it. It was their self-imposed Christmas deadline here. So the efforts to Real Mansion in reached a new level on Monday as he and Biden spoke by the phone. And the senator told reporters he and the president shared a, quote, nice conversation in which he, quote, engaged with his former Senate colleague. I would just like to take bets that they didn't talk one moment about Build Back Better. I, like, something tells me that they're like, 
So, uh, did you uh, go fishing this weekend? Like, how's the I fly fishing? I can totally see that. Like, I would love to, you... like, be a fly on the wall for the small talk and some of these, like, the opening small talks for these business conversations. But anyways, according to Manchin, he and Biden were, quote, just talking about, quote, different iterations of the package, leaving open the possibility that the West Virginia centrist courted by all sides for months. ridiculous. I- I need to take a page out of Joe Manchin's book on how to be courted because and how to play hard to get because this man is doing everything I need to do in my dating life. Like, actually, like Joe Manchin for sure read the book Why Men Love Bitches, and he is just the epitome of like how women should act while dating. Holy light bulb. Like... (laughs) You know what? Like, Joe I Manchin need to talk to John Manchin and I want we need to get him on the show and be like, oh no, I'm actually not here to talk about politics. Like I need to know <laughs> your ways. Give us your How strategy. do you do this? How, How do you hold do them you... off? But like Tell honestly, me. like it is like he's it, getting it's impressive. It truly... And he's been and it's like we don't even know all the behind the scenes shit of like what this courting really means. I mean, we know how DC works for the most part of like totally. you'll get the nicest bottles of wine, the nicest dinners, like they for sure court you and wine and dine you and Mansion has been actually getting this for months over Build Back Better. And he's just everything I want to be as a woman. <laughs> Literally. You know what? He pisses me off in this concept of policy, but in his yep. strategy here, he's giving us something. He's really... He's teaching huh. me a lesson for sure, I will say, yeah. in a different area of my life. Okay, wait, But in I the actually, po- political I, realm. At this point with this Build Back Better plan, Jesus Christ, you know all the options. No, he's... No, he's... he's listen, just, now he's just being a little player. No, I mean, oh, the oh, whole he, time he has been... The whole time he has been, you know, an absolute shit regarding this, just like doing the worst. Like, I feel like he also hasn't even been vocal about like what it really would take to get him on the right side. He's just like, oh, come out with, come at me with a new proposal like next week. Let I'll, I'll figure it out. Like, not like you haven't really given the details of your approach to this conversation. And his reasons um, are weird. Like, it's like, okay, yeah, like, yeah okay, it's all inflation. It's obviously important. Yeah, but. Then when the argument is that this reduces or has a potential to reduce inflation, that seems like it doesn't add up. And I know that there's varying opinions. We talked about that a lot with Brian on um, that episode. But, like, the sense that, like, paid leave is going to be the issue that changes the future of inflation, I don't think so. No, he's, I don't know. Or energy. But part of me thinks it's, yeah, the, like, energy climate stuff because he's such, he's a West Virginia dude. But Yeah, true, true, true. Anyways, he, again, is being courted by all sides for months. I'm really going to, again, just moving forward, really take a page out of his book and do my best to to be, you know, like Joe Manchin in my dating life. But moving forward, he actually might back the nearly $2 trillion social spending and climate bill by Christmas. Um and he has been arguing, however, to wait until 2022 to get a better handle on rising U.S. inflation. These ongoing talks, which seem to like never end, have really shown that he's like declined support for this bill over and over again. And he has not given the okay to even start and debate on it either, which is just like, dude, talk it out. Talk it out, walk it out. Many people are very desperate to get this multi-trillion dollar legislation over the finish line, especially before Christmas. Christmas? What? How is that a thing? Krimis? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I, am I dis- don't know what's happening. I'm disturbed by myself and my brain. Okay. Anyways, um, we got the multi-trillion dollar legislation over the finish line before Christmas. So Manchin, of course, had his, his words on this. He always makes a little tidbit of a statement. He said that Democrats should curb the cost of their $2 trillion social and environmental bill by choosing their top priorities. Like, I didn't realize we were in a candy store, FYI. Like, just FYI. Like, is this like, okay, I'm going to get some jelly beans over here, some peanut butter cups over there. Like, what the fuck? Anyways, he criticized Democrats' decision to make many of the measures initiatives temporary to limit the bill's price tag. Nugent said that his party should pick its highest priorities and have at least the full 10-year life of the bill while keeping its overall cost below $2 trillion, a combination that seems unworkable at this point. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, and then he does make a suggestion and then it's like actually just not doable. It's like... 
What is you doing, Joe? I um, okay. You know what I want to hear? Maybe this requires some additional reading on my end. Is like I am really curious what the the general consensus from his West Virginia constituents is in terms of like what like when you think of like obviously he keeps getting reelected, but like when you think of like Joe Manchin, he's like this more moderate Democrat, like this makes you feel comfortable in electing a Democrat in, like, a state that's typically more Republican in a lot of ways. Like, what is yeah. it that, like, makes you feel like, yeah, like, this particular argument is helping you and that, therefore, like, these, like, more I think popular... It's, I think yeah. it's more about OpenSecrets.org and... Oh, a thousand percent. Um, but I'm <laughs> looking still just at can, who gives him money. I'm still just but. curious as to, like, what, like, his actual constituents feel about it. Like, are they happy with this? Are they pleased? Like... Anyways, if we have any West Virginia listeners, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts. Please DM us or email us. You know where to find us. But like, do you want to know what his his top it's industries cool. are? It's definitely cool. And just yeah, top industries for Joe Manchin, you guys. By the way, this is a massive climate bill, so keep that in mind. Coal mining, mining, natural gas transmission and distribution, oil and gas. Those are the those are the top four number mm. one industries for him that give him money so there's your answer really but it's just like so annoying that like if I were a journalist or you know anybody writing this story that we're reading right now or if I worked at CNN or something I'd be like why don't they say Joe Manchin is not cooperating or compromising because of this money that is at opensecrets.org here it is here's your answer like why don't why is that never ever a part of the article ever part of the conversation that is a really really good point like ev- they never ever ever talk about it of like why different representatives do certain things make certain decisions and vote in certain ways like if you're a journalist isn't that like the number one reason why you can explain why they act the way they do totally like, like a why would it show totally they just never fucking talk about it it's like insane so go to opensecrets.org how many times we got to say it but i will say it is interesting like obviously this is for further conversation as well but like there are moments like that right where you like find that like you have that like observation and that sort of like oh my god that is kind of weird that they don't like cover it and then you see the mistrust that especially the like the extreme right really has with like the mainstream media and you go you know what like well, it's because CNN is also funded oh. by, like, it's all constructed by these corporations. Everything. Totally. Which is just, it goes to show, but it is, I think, more than anything, it goes to show, like, Brittany Ramos de point. She's a congressional mm-hmm. candidate, guys, if, that we've had on the show. If you guys haven't listened to the episode, go back and listen. She's a phenomenal candidate running in New York. And she is running in an area that is like Staten Island and Brooklyn. Staten Island, if you're not from like this area, is like traditionally like incredibly red. And it's kind of like the borough in the city that's like, wait a second. Like, I thought this was a Democrat area. And you're like, no. Anyways, her point being is when she was previously knocking for a different Democrat in a previous race, what she found going door to door is that like the majority of people like were just fed up in general. And the people that voted for Trump were like, also people that would vote for Bernie like they're both on either extremes of it which just goes to show that like people are just like I can't deal with this sort of like in between establishment establishment thing which Joe Manchin very much is so it's interesting that like obviously location comes into play and all that or whatever but just interesting sentiments where like sometimes we're not as far away from agreeing on things than we like realize with people on opposite sides and I think that is such a good example of that where it's like Mm -hmm. hmm there's some holes in the things we see and the way that they're portrayed and it's just crazy how it's never talked about like the corporate control is the answer to every single one of the issues but it's never talked about because who's who has the microphone it's the people being funded by those corporations so it's just like that's why girl in the guts here you guys we we don't have any (laughs) we don't have any corporations giving us money (laughs) so i promise you that but anyways so let's move on 
<laughs> yeah. Moving on to our next story. There is some tea. There are some receipts. There are some screenshots here regarding the January 6th insurrection. Mm-hmm. We get to read off some text messages, which is always fun. So let's get into this I story. I fucking love this. <laughs> because the House Select Committee investi- uh, investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol unveiled a number of text messages sent to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows from Donald Trump Jr. and several top Fox News hosts and pundits begging him to get former President Trump to stop the violence on January 6th. So the messages which Meadows submitted to the panel included those from Trump's eldest son, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and Brian Kilmeade. I don't Who's that? I don't know. Who were pressing Meadows to convince the ex-president to intervene during the opening moments of the siege. So here are some of the first texts. I'll pass the mic to Sam for the, you know, second half. But I'll take these first, yeah. Yeah. This is a quote from Donald Trump Jr. texting Meadows as the attack was underway. He said, quote, he's got to condemn this shit ASAP. Meadows responded, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. Across the administration, Trump officials on January 6th pleaded for Meadows to persuade Trump to intervene and intervene and messages read, quote, someone is going to get killed and, quote, POTUS needs to calm this shit down. Samantha, Um, take it away. Well, Trump was like staying silent. His eldest son reached out again to Meadows, according to Rob Liz Cheney, who is, by the way, right now the vice chairman of the panel. Read a lot of the series of these texts. So like that's where this is happening. And Donnie Boy Jr. said, we need an Oval Office address. He has to leave now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand. His voice is not even that deep. I don't know why that's my impression of him. Regardless, he does have a weird voice, actually. Very weird voice, but it's not that. Like, mine's weird. Uh, uh, it's kind of close. Oh, my God. I feel like I'm great. Oh, my God. Should I, go? Should I be back? No, he has, like, a really annoying voice. No, but obviously that wasn't your voice, but you really just nailed the, like, deep, weird, just Donald Trump Jr. voice. It just, he's just... It was close. It was close. Okay. I feel like, you know, a few few acting classes, I could be... He kind of sounds like he has, like, peanut butter stuck in his mouth. He looks like he has peanut butter stuff. (laughs) Yeah, he does. Like, it's like the expression he has on his face. Like, I'm trying to be like, I'm not trying to face shame him, but, like, it's like, (laughs) it's the expression. But I will read another text because, you know... Mark, president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting us all. He's destroying his legacy, which is what Ingram, good old Fox News Ingram, texted Meadows. So messages were revealed ahead of Monday evening's vote to hold Meadows in contempt of Congress in response to his refusal to cooperate further with the investigation. And the full House is expected to pass the resolution night, a.k.a. Tuesday. So you guys are listening to this like the next day, but largely along party lines. But like... Also, and someone made this comment on classic me, I'm blanking on who it is. I really need to have better memory. Regardless, made the comment of like how wild is that like Donald Trump Jr. especially, he's not texting his dad directly. Like he's a middleman. Like Right, what is that? About? That is bizarre. Like that goes to show like obviously every family. They don't has have any control dynamics. over him. None. No, but that's like that's really been the theme with any kind of leaked shit that's come out during or after the Trump administration is that nobody had control over him nobody he he was off the rails always they had to just constantly pivot what he was doing and nobody can control what he did ever or said ever which is and it's like you know last year around this time when we were approaching the new year we i believe at one point made some new year's resolutions or you know predictions for the year and i think Mm -hmm. one of them was that donald trump would end up behind bars that obviously has not happened is this is this enough for that? Like, the fact that, like, is this, this whole investigation, could it actually get him some type of, like, legal ramifications? It's a great question. I mean, I feel like, if anything, like, like what is this really going to achieve? I don't know. I really don't know. Like, I think this is a little bit of, like, a time will tell. But I definitely don't have much faith i don't think i have much but faith if his whole camp either. was trying to get him to stop they clearly knew that they were responsible for the insurrection in a lot of ways so as more of these details come out like who's going to be held accountable and how that's the question it is a good one but that dude aside we got to talk about another another white dude and his name is chris wallace 
Anyways, he's a veteran anchor at Fox News, and he has officially left after 18 years for CNN, a little competitor situation. So after, you know, these 18 long, tantalizing, love-filled years, he has decided to leave for CNN. So a little competitor moment, which is kind of interesting. And this is kind of looked at as a blow to Fox's news operation from a competitive stance in their world, you know. Wallace generally coexisted with Fox's opinion side and infrequently took them on publicly, although in 2017 he said it was bad form when opinion hosts bashed the media, which is kind of interesting. But he had grown privately frustrated with the overall tenure at Fox where conservative opinion hosts, <coughs> Tucker Carlson, have been elevated and amplified, particularly after the network's ratings took a brief hit following the 2020 election and the network ousted two news executives involved in the controversial but correct election night declaration that biden had won in arizona and called it never forget you just like i never forget when fox news projected the the w the w the very important w which we need to get again in 2024 maybe it's Mm -hmm. not biden but the dem so guys just start thinking start thinking start voting start telling your friends about this podcast to get them involved ahead of that okay anyways back to the story wallace had expressed his concern about sort of the strident opinion programming that fox has not only been known for but has really come to come to light through tucker carlson's documentary on the january 6th capital insurrection which we're talking about wait i didn't even know this documentary existed and i'm scared terrifying terrifying did you watch it i haven't because i want to not freak out roll myself into a ball cry shake throw something i never watch anything on fox news but i can't believe tucker carlson should never be allowed to be a documentarian ever no there's just no all documentaries have lost merit since Tucker Carlson <laughs> made a documentary. He's ruined them. He's ruined their vibe. Justice for documentarians everywhere. <laughs> I just, I can't. This, is, like, this really? documentary is called Patriot Purge. I, I can't. I can't. I really, I just. Oh. Two Fox News contributors, Jonah Goldberg and Stephen Hayes, cited that that program in is why they quit the network. I would love to just know, like, all the conversations that went on as he was like leaving and the drama because i will i first of all i'm sure people are watching succession kind of similar vibes the morning show on apple tv is also just like all the behind the scenes that go into you know main main news tv channel and everything all that drama i'm just so now i'm very intrigued of like what the inside of fox news looks like while he was exiting and in like probably this whole year because i'm sure it's been very tumultuous for him but but also he's going to cnn plus which is their new streaming service and apparently i guess that'll be interesting to see too like some of these news the like news channels going to streaming because i don't know what kind of freedom that allows because it's not like cable tv so that'll be interesting too to like see these media companies and big like news conglomerates in the streaming world and what that will do to the way these narratives are pushed. But anyways, and Sam actually doesn't even own a TV. I don't. So I need she one. watches from her computer. It's really, it's like one of those things. Like it I can't believe you don't have one. It just would ruin my aesthetic. You know what I mean? I never was allowed to have a TV in my bedroom Me growing either. up. And I catch myself all the time, just like in my room and just looking at my TV hanging on my wall and being like, wow, I made it. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Like, this is what this is adulting looks like. This is adulthood. I have a TV hanging in my bedroom. Okay, wait, let's go to our last story before we everyone um, turns us off because yeah, it's going to be a two-hour-long episode. Anyways, so Florida, you guys, for the first time in modern history, registered Republican voters are outnumbering Democrats. So <laughs> not looking good not moving looking into good. next year. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, the WOT, is heading into a re-election campaign buoyed by a national profile and cash reserved unmatched by any Democratic challenger at this point. And Republicans control virtually all of state government. (laughs) Um, Besides the commissioner of agriculture, Nikki Freed, who we're trying to get on the show. Nikki, if you're listening to this, you're a team. Check your email. Check your inbox. Justice for Nikki. Come on to the show, please. And yeah. So when Democrats met recently for their annual strategy conference, Annette Tadeo, a Democrat Democratic state senator running for governor said there was a clear sense of difficulties ahead for the party. No uh, shit, Sherlock. Cross country, actually. <laughs> so, um, 
quote, of course, this fight will not be easy, but it's so much more than any one of us. And as Florida Democrats, we have lost so many times that donors and pundits have given up on us. That's just so sad and pathetic. And she added, I believe and I know we can win if we create a coalition of voters that are needed to win in a state where these decisions are made by 1% or less. Um... Yeah, so anyways, with the 2022 election approaching, Democrats are confronting a host of disadvantages as they work to rebuild campaign networks and try to reignite excitement within their party. There is this growing worry that big donors and national wing of the party may consider Florida to be GOP territory after years of bruising losses like two Trump victories, for example, and again, like the entire pretty much state government being GOP run. So, And then the most like kind of up-to-date figures for this, it shows... 5,120,076 registered Republicans and 5,095,008 Democrats. Why are those numbers so hard to read? Take me back to elementary school <laughs> because I need Jesus. But yeah, that's that. I mean, it's it doesn't surprise me, but I will make one one point of interest this is my day for opinions. I clearly woke up when I was like today everyone is hearing my bullshit. Yeah, you chose. You woke up and chose violence. I literally chose violence. It's (laughs) you know, it's fine, but it's really it goes to show like the difference of like local politics, even between like local and state, because there are actually like a lot of Democratic mayors in Florida, and some that are actually like newly elected, which is really interesting, really cool. And obviously, we'll see what they do. We'll see how they all you know. Each city is so different. Each town is so different. Different needs, etc. But like, it's interesting how like depending on how a politician or a expert in the political field is able to sort of capitalize on understanding their exact demographic and their exact area, how they can actually capture a win and make progress based on that as opposed to like their party name and affiliation is really interesting. And I just feel like there is such a name game. And granted, I don't live in Florida. I've been to Florida like, I don't know, like last time is then like, I've, I've been to, to Miami. Yeah, I've been to Miami. <laughs> <laughs> Not really the same thing. <laughs> I'm a such an esteemed Florida traveler. I just, I know. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I've, I've been to Miami. I've been to clubs, you know, it really counts. I've been to Kiki on the River and Eleven. <laughs> so I've been in Florida. Bodega? Yeah. So, that's our Florida yeah. experience. We're but really sorry. We'll be back. If you we'll... are in Florida, though, and you're worried about this, Honestly, DM us. I think there is also a lot of, like, congressional moments happening in Florida. But it's honestly just crazy that I feel like when you think of, like, who's registering voters, it's never Republicans. No. So this is kind of – this is, like – this is really shocking to me, honestly. This is, like, this headline. Um, It is really interesting. (laughs) The one silver lining I will say, and this is what I'm holding out hope for, Mm -hmm. is that – a lot of this bad news that's coming out about 2022 and the midterms and how the Democrats are just literally across the board, across the country, not looking good and not looking like they were going to have any type of victories next year. At least this is all coming out now. It is still really so early. True. And I'm hoping that it just like is enough to really shake people up and rattle people. But I'm hoping that a lot of this is starting to be like, oh, fuck, like, it's time again. It's time to rally rally the troops again and hopefully change some things and make some big efforts and get it get it done. But and like if you're seeing like what's happening in Congress right now and you're like, wait, I thought we put all this effort in in 2020 and like why is shit still not happening? It's like because there's a lot of positions, there are a lot of seats that need to still change and like make mm-hmm. that like part of your priority of like being civically engaged and being a voter this time around is like get your friends to vote that are in different states and different areas like too like this is not like it nothing changes with one election like yeah it's just maybe a few good things maybe a few bad things a handful but like it's not like oh there's one election we have a few new people in and now oh my god the world has shifted holy shit party for everyone oh my god you get a balloon you get a puppy like whatever like that's just not the case so i mean even just look at fucking the fact that Build Back Better isn't being passed because of one 
person. One person. And then everyone obviously looks to Biden. They're like, fuck Biden. And he's making a lot of mistakes. She, he also is not canceling student debt like he promised. There's a lot of things he promised in his campaign that are not even being talked about. So there's a lot of issues there for sure. But it really depends down the ballot who you vote for and who you elect into office for shit to actually get done. It doesn't. It's not just one office. It's not just the presidency. So. That's that on that. That's our episode. I feel like lots of lessons learned today. Biggest lesson learned for sure is that I need to be like Joe Manchin in my dating life. Yep. There yep. it is. That's that's the takeaway. Everyone, everyone take yep. that into account. Use that. Abuse that. Yep. 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 Um, well, that's it for our for our top stories. You can rate, review, and subscribe. Like these are all things no matter Please your do, mentality. Actually. You do. And know what I think is something if you have not turned us off at this point in, in the podcast. <laughs> and I, if you haven't, if you have, I don't blame you. If you haven't, wow, good for you. Love you. <laughs> you guys are a tried and true. You are a absolute like ride or die. We yeah. love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a great time to share an episode, share the pod with a friend. Whether you have like a group chat with your friends, you know, you're going home from the holidays. And you need something to, honestly, you need something to talk about with your your cousins around the the old holiday table. Like, this podcast is a great way to get the conversation moving and grooving. So make sure you are sharing because sharing is caring. Yes. And go check out our new website. We have pretty much, like, have you ever hit the link in our bio and our Instagram and just seen, like, so many links? Like, pretty much all of that is on our website now in one place. So Mm -hmm. go to girlinthegov.com. You can reach out to us there. You can look at all of our offerings. You can submit guest suggestions. There's tons of things to do on our website, so go check it out. And that is it for this week. Thank you again for listening and making it this far. You're just an absolute champion. And we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.